Our next speaker is David Bindman, Bindman? Bindman. Um, who is Emeritus Professor of the History of Art at University College London. Um, he was the editor of the History of British Art at Yale University Press 2008. Um, and this led up to um, the, the book, Ape to Apollo, um, Aesthetics and the Idea of Race in the 18th Century, which came out with Cornell University Press in 2002. And now, soon, um, the uh, the 20th century volume, I think, of um, The Image of the Black in Western Art, um, which is due for publication in 2014, 2015, yes. 14, um, 14, 2014. Um, so, off to you, thank you. Thank you very much. Perhaps I'll say a little bit about The Image of the Black series. So far, eight volumes uh, in print have appeared since last year. Um, and I'm now working on the two volumes of the 20th century. And rather interestingly, several people at this conference actually uh, are written about in the series. And uh, Hank Willis Thompson is written about by his own mum, which is, I think, unique in the history of art, as far as I know. But, um, so I should begin by saying that I'm not an expert on Harriet Beecher Stowe, but I've recently made a small discovery of a previously unknown illustration to a novel, Dread, and I want to put that in context. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has recently reminded us that the film Django Unchained revives the old trope of the difference between the house Negro and the field Negro, given currency in Malcolm X's famous speech to the student nonviolent coordinating committee workers in Selma, Alabama on February the 4th, 1965. And I'll quote this at some length. Um, Back during slavery, there were two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negroes, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food, what he left. They lived in the attic or the basement, but they still lived near the master. And they loved their master more than the master loved himself. They would give their life to save the master's house quicker than the master would. In contrast, Malcolm continues, there was the field Negro who hated his master. When the house caught on fire, he didn't try to put it out. That field Negro prayed for a wind, for a breeze. When the master got sick, the field Negro prayed that he die. And how did the field Negro feel about running away or staging a rebellion? If someone come to the field Negro and said, let's separate, let's, let's run, he didn't say where we're going. He'd say any place is better than here. You've got field Negroes in America today. I'm a field Negro. The masses are the field Negroes. Just as the slave master of that day used Tom, the house Negro, to keep the field Negroes in check, the same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms. 20th century Uncle Toms to keep you and me in check, keep us under control, keep us passive and peaceful and non-violent. That's Tom making you non-violent. Now, Malcolm X's target was, of course, Martin Luther King, whose advocacy of non-violent resistance often an alternative to armed uprising. It also gives currency to the use of Uncle Tom as, the parable, as a paradigm of the mild, biddable slave who selflessly identifies with his master's interests 
to the point of selling out his brothers in the fields, like the evil figure of Stephen, played so compellingly by Samuel Jackson in the film. Malcolm X's easy rhetorical slide from the treacherous house Negro to Uncle Tom deeply offended King himself, but is symptomatic of the way that Harriet Beecher Stowe's creation has been reduced to a cringing stereotype over the last two centuries. In Uncle Tom's Cabin, Stowe makes a contrast between peaceful and violent ways to black emancipation in the contrasting figures of the Christian pacifist Uncle Tom and the angry George Harris, who has much to be angry about, but does not have a central presence in the novel, as does Uncle Tom. Though this contrast between the patient slave and the angry activist is replayed in Stowe's follow-up novel Dread, the balance has shifted quite dramatically to make Dread, the fierce advocate of physical force, like his father, Denmark Vesey, the principal focus of the novel, while old Tiff, who is more like the modern construction of Uncle Tom than Stowe's, plays the humble but pious slave. Uncle Tom is often seen as being for Stowe the way forward for black emancipation, but she is less simple-minded than Tom himself. It is also clear that already in Uncle Tom's cabin, she sees violent anger as at least one natural response to the deep injustice of a slavery system underpinned by the law. In other words, the threat of violence was both a natural and inevitable companion of Christ Christian forbearance. And this feeling only intensified in the troubled years after the book's publication. Furthermore, Uncle Tom himself is an altogether more complex person than the cringing house Negro with whom he has become synonymous. He is, as, often, as has often been remarked, a Christ-like figure willing to forgive his and, his and the world's tormentors, but he's also brave and principled, defying his wicked master Simon Legree at the cost of his own life. Uncle Tom is described on his first appearance in the book as, and I quote, a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man. There was something about his whole air, self-respecting and dignified, yet united with a confiding and humble simplicity. And in early representations, he's always shown as a young man, as in, this is the, the Hammond Billings illustration. Um, in, in, the, in fact, in the Billings illustrations to the first editions of 1852 to three, he could be in his 20s. And in the very popular Staffordshire figure of Uncle Tom and Little Eva, he's shown as a cold black but dashingly youthful figure, almost dandyish with his hat and braid of flowers. Even in the Crookshank illustrations, there's nothing avuncture or grandfatherly about him. In this affecting print, by the painter John Anster Fitzgerald, probably dating from the early 1850s, shortly after Uncle Tom's cabin arrived in England, Tom is shown as a devout Christian, but again, still a young man. Now, for a later construction of um, Uncle Tom as uh, a much older figure, white-haired, I showed this extraordinary poster, which is actually very, very large, um, you saw it, I think, in Keith's, um, on the wall in, in one of Keith's 
images this morning and it's very large indeed and interestingly it's um, described as being printed in Birmingham and there seems to be a real question as to whether it's printed in Birmingham, Alabama or Birmingham, England and if anyone has any ideas on that I did think it was probably Birmingham, England but I've talked to people in Birmingham so far no one's come up with anything um, but I think it's possible that the uh, uh, the idea of you know the, the kind of minstrel dialect or whatever on it is probably suggestive more of Birmingham, Alabama. But anyway, I don't know. In England, and possibly to a lesser degree in the United States, the two scenes in Uncle Tom's cabin of interaction between Tom and Eva were by far the most popular, being reincarnated in countless versions separate from the book itself, such as the Staffordshire figure which we've seen and which was produced in many variants. This is clearly based on the Cruikshank illustration, which I show on the screen, of Eva adorning Tom with flowers, and was probably first produced soon after the publication in 1852 of the English edition. This episode describes Eva hanging flowers on Tom's neck. There sat Tom on a little mossy seat in the court, every one of his buttonholes stuck full of cape jessamines, and Eva, gaily laughing, was hanging a wreath of roses round his neck. Then she sat on down his knee like a chip sparrow, still laughing, Oh Tom, you look so funny. Tom expresses his sense of the beauty of, the, of nature but they're overlooked by St. Clair and Olivia, the latter of whom represents a cold northern abolitionism without love, though these two are usually omitted from most representations of the scene, including this one. This is by Crookshank. The other episode, um, even more popular from the number of later versions, is of little Eva reading the Bible to Uncle Tom, seated by Lake Pontchartrain. And I show here the Crookshank's original drawing in the British Museum because I couldn't find a, uh, an image that was clear enough um, from the print. Um, this scene contains intimations of Eva's imminent death and her response to the Book of Revelation, which she reads to Tom. She and her simple friend, the old child and the young one. There are two parts to the episode, both of which were illustrated by different artists. In the first part, Eva reads a passage that refers to a sea of glass mingled with fire. This reminds her of the sunset over the lake to which she points. See, this is the scene that's represented here. Um, in the second part, this leads to Tom singing a hymn, I see a band of spirits bright, that mentions the New Jerusalem from Revelation. The child rose and pointed her little hand to the sky. Uncle Tom, I am going there, to the spirits bright, I am going before long. The Billings illustration shows Eve, Eva pointing upwards towards the sky, but Crookshank shows her arm horizontally pointing towards the view, and later versions follow either of the two gestures. Now, much has been made by Marcus Wood and others of the erotic potential of the conjunction of the two figures, especially of Eva's hand on Tom's knee in the Billings version. 
No Ruskin complained that the religious message was, I quote, complicated by Eva having a dainty foot and a well-made slipper. The real distinction is between revelation through nature, uh, as in the sea of glass, and also in the scene of Eva dressing Tom in flowers, and the apocalyptic revelation of the world beyond death. It is perhaps significant that uh, Cruikshank, um, this is in fact shows the second episode um, of her reflecting on death, um, that it's also significant that, that Cruikshank, when he was making pencil studies for the illustrations, should at one point have looked at the scene of Eva pointing at the lake, together with the earlier scene for adorning Tom with flowers, and here's the drawing from the British Museum with the, the two episodes on one sheet. In fact, round the wrong way. So why were these images of Tom and Eva together so popular? Now, I accept the possibility of subconscious sexual prurience, but in my view, it's associated more with the Victorian taste for pious dying children, like little Nell in Dickens' old curiosity shop of 1841. This comparison was noted by Dickens himself, who complained in a mock American voice that Stowe was a little unscrupulous in the appropriating way. The fact also remains that the public on both sides of the Atlantic was probably more comfortable with the idea that slavery could be ended by a change of heart in the slave owners rather than by physical force, and that people like Uncle Tom could melt their hearts and convert them by the sheer force of goodness. And in any case, there was always the alternative idea raised by both Stowe and Abraham Lincoln that blacks could be removed from the United States and settled in Africa. Nonetheless, Stowe herself was intelligent enough to see that virtue might not be enough against the slave owners and transigents, and by the time she wrote a follow-up novel, Dread, in 1856, she was wor worried that the slave owners might yet prevail. So Stowe had learned from the response of African Americans to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and the violent events of the 1850s in Kansas to respect the defiant and insurrectionary impulses of such rebels as Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner, um, whose confessions um, are actually an appendix in Dread, in the, the first edition of Dread. Um, and she also argues that these, that their uh, insurrectionary impulses were derived from the same impulses as those of the founding fathers of the United States. In Dread, the eponymous hero is the son of Vizi by a Mandingo slave woman, um, and so he is the spiritual heir of the, the two black rebels, that's to say Vizi and Nat Turner, whose burning prophetic anger derived largely from the Old Testament, and that can be compared with that of George Harris in Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is not to say that Stowe openly advocates insurrection, but it is an active part of the debate with those within the black community who offer a more conventionally Christian or New Testament solution. Against dread is the figure of Millie, who, like Uncle Tom, counsels patience in the face of oppression. But the nearest to, in character to Uncle Tom in the novel 
is, as I mentioned, old Tiff. Now, Tiff is important to my paper because he's the subject of the one genuine, if minor, discovery that I, I, can, can, I can claim in this paper. Um, a previously unknown illustration of dread by a minor pre-Raphaelite illustrator uh, called Eleanor Via Boyle, which I'll show on the screen, not in a very good uh, uh, image. Uh, and Eleanor Via Boyle um, lived from 1825 to 1916, though I have to say that it is actually signed uh, Cecilia Boyle. But the evidence that the author was in fact Eleanor is to be found in a comparison with other illustrations she made, one of which I can present here. And I think, I hope that's clear enough from that, how close in style of handling that is to the previous illustration. There was in fact no illustration edition in, of Dread in America or Britain, largely for practical reasons as Paul Kaplan has discovered in a paper to be published next year that I've relied on heavily for this part of my text. Eleanor Boyle was from an aristocratic family from the north of Scotland. She was the youngest daughter of Alexander Gordon of Ellen Castle in Aberdeenshire. And in 1845, she married Richard Cavendish, a younger son of the 8th Earl of Cork. She might, being from a, a, a highland landowning family have known the Duchess of Sutherland, whose husband built the enormous Dunrobin Castle in Sutherland some 150 miles away, and where Stowe stayed on her first visit to Britain in 1856. But I have to confess that neither I nor Paul Kaplan have found any direct evidence for that. The Sutherlands were fabulously wealthy, owning what was called Stafford House and is now Lancaster House in London. Now, the Duchess was a fervent opponent of American slavery and a close friend and supporter of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Another member of the circle was Lady Byron, widow of the poet, and also a fervent abolitionist, who confided in Stowe the sordid story of the poet's sex life, which was published by Stowe herself in 1869. Now, Paul Kaplan has also discovered that the Duchess of Sutherland through her connections with the Staffordshire pottery industry, and her husband was also Marcus of Stafford, and the family owned a large part of the county, um, was responsible for one of the very few previously known illustrations to dread, a recently discovered Parian group, uh, which I sh show on the screen, um, which also, as it happens, includes Tiff, by the fascinating mixed-race sculptor from New Orleans, uh, Eugene Warburg. So he manages, he was actually, um, Eugene Warburg was actually one of the um, Warburg banking family. Um, and a connection between this group and Elizabeth Boyle's print seems irresistible. But why are they, are they almost the only 19th century illustration to dread when Uncle Tom's Cabin was profusely illustrated? from the start. Kaplan explains it through the circumstances of Dred's completion in 1856, 
during the period of violence over slavery in Kansas. Stowe left for England in July 1856, finishing the book on the boat over so that she could apply for copyright protection in Britain, which had to be applied for in person. The volume came out almost immediately, so there would have been no time to get it illustrated, then a laborious process, though there were later Dutch, Italian and French editions that had a few illustrations. Given Boyle's possible connections to the Duchess of Sutherland, and possibly also to Stowe, and the rarity of illustrations to dread, it seems not unlikely that she was encouraged by one or the other, or both, to make an illustration from the novel. The inscription on the print, Dread, uh, back, page 206, there, um, refers to the page in the first London edition, and it may have been a trial for a later edition that did not happen because of the novel's loss of popularity after the initial editions. And Dread, it appears, sold in huge numbers as it came out, but there was really no follow-up at all because, um, well, clearly people read it but didn't like it very much and didn't pass it on to their friends. Um, it could also have been produced for another purpose entirely, such as a, a collection of literary illustrations, but at this point this is all we have, um, no other supplementary evidence. Now, both the Wolberg Parian group and the Boyle illustration show Tiff, but in, a slightly, in slightly different episodes. Wolberg's group um, refers uh, to a passage early in the book in which Tiff is introduced and is holding Teddy, the poor white child he is looking after, and the son of his dead white mistress who had been, as Tiff put it, fetched up in the very fustus families of old Virginie, the Paytons, and Tiff himself was happy to be called Tiff Payton. Boyle's image, however, comes near the end of the book, where the feckless heroine, Nina, is induced to reflect on her need for salvation by reading the Bible to Tiff and the children in his care, Tiff's request. Tiff's energetic response to the reading causes uh, Nina to reflect on the passage of time, also by a leaf falling on the page, and her need to heed the message of the Bible. Tiff is instrumental in her conversion. That child of Bethlehem, when afterwards he taught in Galilee, spoke of seed which fell into a good and honest heart, and words could not have been more descriptive of the nature which was now receiving this seed of paradise. When Nina had finished her reading, she found her own heart touched by the effect which she had produced. The nursing, child-loving old Tiff was ready in a moment to bow before his Redeemer, enshrined in the form of an infant, and it seemed as if the air around him had been made sacred by the sweetness of the story. And Tiff, uh, as I think you can see, is represented uh, by Stowe as ugly, ill-dressed and extremely garrulous, spouting folk wisdom enthusiastically in minstrel-like English, but with a natural affinity to nature and the spirit. 
His peculiar ill-matched garb described in the novel is clearly depicted and his ugliness is a little more emphatic in Boyle's representation than in Warburg's sculpture, though neither <coughs> quite reaches up to Stowe's description. Why then this emphasis on Tiff in what are virtually the only English and American illustrations of Dread, though he's far from the most significant actor in the drama? This, I would suggest, can only be answered by looking at the relationship between Uncle Tom's <coughs> Cabin and Dread and then the circumstances in which they were both written and received. It will be obvious, as I've said, that the that Tiff is the nearest in character in Dread to Uncle Tom, in the sense that he's a devout and simple-minded Christian whose goodness and sense of nature uh, contrast with the more worldly white people he works for. He also, like Tom, is able by the force of his simple goodness to make the people around him more Christian, as he does with Nina. Though eventually he flees from slavery, unlike Tom, he is to the last deeply caring about the white children in his care, whom he tends with selfless devotion and respect for their social position. In other words, he's a weaker counterweight to the dominant figure of the book, the physical force insurrectionist dread, just as in Uncle Tom's cabin, George Harris is to Uncle Tom himself. Whatever Stowe's own feelings, which were evidently conflicted as political events made a physical struggle and even a war over slavery seem inevitable, it is clear from the popularity of Uncle Tom's cabin and especially of Uncle Tom himself, whose love and protected feelings towards the white children uh, are so evident in the illustrations of the book, that he was the kind of black man favoured by white readers and especially white abolitionists. Tiff is not quite the same as Uncle Tom. He is deliberately characterised as physically unprepossessing, but he's also totally safe, biddable and Christian. Dread, of course, and possibly Stowe herself, um, uh, saw no hope of converting the white ascendancy, especially in the South, to the full emancipation of black people. And he represents among other things, the failure of Uncle Tom and indeed Tiff to impose on them true Christian values. Stowe's political evolution from Uncle Tom to Dread was complex and nuanced, but the public response to Dread in both the US and Britain, though initially highly favourable, suggests that her audience had not moved with her, and especially not her British supporters, who would have been more remote from the issues raised by the bloody exchanges in Kansas. Stowe's high-born British friends would surely have been more comfortable with Uncle Tom and Tiff than with the figure of Dread. It is also worth noting that the Duchess of Sutherland might have had strong feelings about the need for a docile labouring class, as her family, her parents-in-law in particular, played a major part in the Highland clearances that forced so many of her of their tenants to emigrate to America and other places after their homes had been deliberately destroyed. This history had been conveyed to Stowe, though she was deeply impressed by the care for tenants she encountered at Dunrobin Castle, and indeed was positively fawning on the British aristocrats she met, including Queen Victoria. The potential hypocrisy of the Duchess's opposition to American slavery 
in the light of her family's interests was widespread in Britain and it was highlighted by, of all people, Karl Marx, writing in the People's Paper of January the 21st, 1853. I quote, During the present momentary slackness in political affairs, the address of the Stafford House Assembly of Ladies to their sisters in America upon the subject of Negro slavery has proved a godsend to the press. Not one of the British papers was ever struck by the circumstance that the Stafford House Assembly took place at the palace under the presidency of the Duchess of Sutherland, and yet the names of Stafford and Sutherland should have been sufficient to class the philanthropy uh, of the British aristocracy, a philanthropy which chooses its objects as far distant from home as possible, and rather on uh, that than on this side of the ocean. Marx then goes on to describe the history of the horrors of the clearances, ending in the following ringing sentence. The enemy of British wage slavery has a right to condemn Negro slavery. The Duchess of Sutherland never. Now, we have perhaps come a long way from Django um, and Malcolm X, but the latter would not have been surprised to find that white abolitionists and the British and American public were attracted to the unthreatening model of black resistance represented by Uncle Tom and Tiff, um, rather than the way of Denmark, Vesey, Nat Turner and Dredd. Though Queen Victoria and the Duke and Duchess of Sutherland both spoke enthusiastically to, to Stowe about the novel when she met them in 1856. And I suspect it's not irrelevant that the figure of Dredd does not appear in the novel for the first time until page 176. But the person in, who, in my view, comes out best from this account is surely Harriet Beecher Stowe herself, who, despite a number of jarring attitudes still present in Dredd, was willing to learn from the response to Uncle Tom's cabin that, was, that the way forward for African Americans was not only the way of Uncle Tom in either his original or modern incarnation, but also that of Malcolm X's field negro. Thank you very much. <laughs>